Welcome to the teaching ministry at Crothers Creek Community Church. Hey, good morning, Crothers Creek. I'm really glad that you're here this morning, and hello again to our online audience, wherever you might be. Uh, around Toronto, around the world today. Well, we're still in our series, uh, Romans Back to Basics. So as we say every week, if you've got your Bible, whether it's electronic or a hard copy, if you can pull it out or turn it on, we're going to be in Romans chapter uh, 8 today. As I was preparing for this message this week, a memory came flooding back to me of a time when I was dating Joanna. And Joanna and I uh, were falling in love, and we decided to go on a date downtown, and we borrowed one of Joanna's dad's cars, and, and we went down, and we had a great date. We were driving back on the 401, and that's our main highway for you watching online, and we hit a road called McCowan. Most of us here know it, right? And something didn't feel right about the car. Uh, shutter is too strong a word, stall absolutely too strong, but you ever been in a car where things just don't seem, well, that's what started happening. Well, as we were approaching from McCowan to Westie, things got really bad. We had that Seinfeld moment, do you know that, where Kramer said, one more time, you know. We were going, well, we need to pull over, but we need to keep going. What should we do? And we were debating back and forth. We said, no, let's just keep going. We've got to get home. We don't know what's going on. By the time we got on the off exit at Westie, Things were rocking and rolling in the car. They were sputtering. I started saying, well, maybe we've stripped a gear, or maybe something's wrong with the transmission. Do you think I have a clue what that means? No. That's what I saw in the movies. Guys are supposed to say that, even though to this day at 35, I still don't know what that means at all. So Joanne and I are really worried, and we're going, I'm not sure if the car is going to blow up at all. We see a gas station, and we have this debate. Should we pull over, or should we not? And we're like, no, we, we just need to get home. So we pass the gas station, we're almost home, and suddenly the car stalls and dies. Oh, no. We turn it back on, there's life. Okay, it happens two more times, and we get home. So we walk in. To my six-foot-plus father-in-law, seven, and say, something's really wrong with the car, Greg. I mean, we didn't do anything at all. We just had a nice date. We were driving and stalling and was sputtering, and there was no smoke, and he went out and looked, and we're just like, oh, no, and he comes back, and he just looks at us, and I'm just waiting, right? And he says, you know, it really helps when there's gas in the car. At that moment, you can imagine the big L loser sign above my head, <laughs> thus coming down and planted on my forehead. And I'm thinking, oh yeah, I'm dating this girl and want to marry her. This is going to go fantastic. He still mocks me, by the way, to this day about cars. <laughs> Another image that is very appropriate to today's message is what I've experienced the last two Mondays. All you uh, who attend here regularly found out that I have allergies. I shared that with you a few weeks ago. I'm 35. I've been allergic my whole life. Didn't know I'm allergic to the world, I found out. And so I went back for breathing tests to make sure I didn't have asthma. So I went in this little box. Anyone done this before? All right. So I'm there, and this guy's smiling. He says, you got to, you know, bring all this oxygen into your lungs and then blow really, really hard. And so, you know, I'm doing this. And you feel your lungs slowly, slowly losing all of its air. See, the truth is this. The car was fine. It just needed gas. My lungs were fine and are fine, thank God, but they need air. They need oxygen. The lungs are fine. The car is fine. But if there is no gas or if there is no air, though they are good, they will not work. That is exactly what Romans chapter 8 is all about. 
Romans chapter 7 that we went through last week is trying to live a Christian life without oxygen or air, and it just doesn't go anywhere. But chapter 8, which we're going to spend two weeks in, is all about what the air and the oxygen is. It's an important image because many of us, many of us, try living a Christian life without Romans chapter 8. And we always, always, always end up back in chapter 7. Last week, if you were here, it's a place that was disheartening to read. It was an honest expression of struggle. Many of us, if we were honest, would probably want to run away from it, but we shouldn't. Last week was Paul being honest about his struggles in the Christian life. As one wrote, that was a bleak self-portrait in the futility of trying to live a Christian life without, ready, the Spirit of God. Hear the words that Paul penned so long ago. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I don't want to do. This will I just keep on doing. What a wretched man that I am. Who will rescue me from this body subject to death? All of these things I remind you this morning were written by a powerful, loving, committed follower of Jesus. But he did not end the conversation with defeat, nor did he end the conversation with the word wretched. He says these words at the end of 7. But thanks be to God, verse 25, who delivers me through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now we all go, fine, Paul. Fine, okay. Yeah, Jesus is the one that's going to help us out. And then most of us intuitively then say, but I suppose it's going to get better in heaven, right? I mean, that's what Paul means, I think. One wrote, many churches today preach a gospel that goes strangely silent after one believes in Jesus Christ and only promises to talk again after death. But Paul wants every one of us right now to know today at this moment that if you are a Christian, life, hear this please, life, victory, and hope are not just a future thing. They can be experienced in large part in the now. He would want every one of us to know also, whether you're here or online, that if you're a seeker this morning, you're not a Christian, or you're a Christian in name only, all that's about to be explained is real. It's free, and it can be given to you if you would embrace the giver of all good gifts, God himself, who is found fully through his son, Jesus Christ. All that's about to be described can become your reality too. Paul says at this moment, no more defeat. No more living a powerless Christian life. No more living in the shadows anymore. No more confession without life-changing power. I've shown you, he declares, from my own life, that when we rely on our own power to live a Christian life, we will always, always fall. But Paul says, that doesn't have to be C4's reality. Why? Because he's about to declare, we have been given the Spirit of God. Now up to this point, Paul in all of Romans has only referenced the Holy Spirit maybe two or three times, but he mentions the third person of the Trinity 19 times in Romans 8. Why? Because this is the way we are delivered through Jesus Christ. It is found in the presence, the power, the promise of the third person of the Holy Trinity. His second last cry, what a wretched man that I am, which sums up again that Christian attempt at kingdom living was nothing but a dark, desperate, lonely, and futile experience. But now, if we have ears to hear, 
The sun comes up, breaking the darkness of night. It's like seeing for the first time. It's like having the weight of debt unexpectedly paid off. Paul says now in the grand theme of liberation, therefore, because of this, verse 1, Romans 8, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We as Christians are no longer condemned. Paul uses first century forensic and legal imagery. We have escaped the deserved sentence of spiritual death that we have justly earned because of sin. But the work of Jesus Christ has covered it, and now we are, and here's that old word, justified. It means we have now been put in good standing. We've been made righteous. We are acquitted. We are no longer guilty by God. He says, you are guilty, but because of the work of Jesus, I now declare you not guilty. We are put into right relationship with God, and all the sins, future, past, and present, are accounted for, dealt with, and removed. This is a good time to say amen. It's a very amazing statement. But as I was reading it, there's something more I had never caught. There's more to this. We're not just in right standing at this moment with the living God, but we are also, ready, free from the power of sin right now. We are not condemned to live a non-victorious Christian life. As F.F. Bruf paraphrased so long ago, there is no reason why those who are in Christ Jesus should go on doing penal servitude as though they've never been pardoned and liberated from that prison house called sin. And all of this, Paul will declare in verse 1, is true if you're in Jesus Christ. Now, in Jesus Christ does not mean going to church. This is not being a Christian in name only or being in a family that uses that name. It's not coming from an ethnic group that would historically even claim the name. It's not liking Jesus as a teacher or thinker or religious revolutionary. To be in Jesus Christ is to be in a personal, vital, all-encompassing relationship with the Son of God. It is to call upon Him to be your personal Savior and Lord. It is actually to be a slave to Jesus and to be more concerned about Him and His kingdom versus ours. It is what Jesus said in John 3, to be born again. It is to be a radical, all-consuming, here it is, servitude, which is the only ownership that brings real freedom. It is not to know about Jesus. It is not to say a creed that is correct about him. It is to have a faith union with him. It is about allegiance. It is about truth. It is about power. And by the way, it's in that order. Now at this moment, Paul then turns us as a community to look upon the one that actually introduced us to Jesus in the full sense, the Spirit of God. And notice again, there is no longer talk of defeat. Yes, he'll say the conflict will go on and on, but where the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit is, so the indwelling power of sin is broken and mastered. Verse 2, because through Jesus Christ, or Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit, who gives life, has set you free from the law of sin and death. Think about this. What an amazing name that we get for the Spirit of God. He's called the Spirit of life. This reminds us of Genesis 1-2, where it says the Spirit of God hovered over nothingness, which brought forth then creation. As creation was spoken from nothing to all, so our spiritual experience is the same. When God says in our lives, let there be light, or let there be life, it is in us. The law by itself showed us sin, stirred up sin, and then we sinned more, and we even got condemned. 
but the Holy Spirit, he brings in our lives forgiveness of sin and the opposite of sin, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. This is the God we worship. And the Spirit of God, Paul will tell us, is the only one who lets us know that we are not condemned. He says in verse 3, For what the law was powerless to do, because it was weakened by the flesh, sin, God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so He condemned sin in the flesh. Now just a side note here, and it's important for us. Notice how Paul describes Jesus here. He says, in the likeness of sinful flesh. If Paul had said, in sinful flesh, then he would have said that Jesus had sin in him and Jesus would not be who he claimed. If Paul had said, in the likeness of flesh, then Jesus would have appeared to be human, but wasn't really human at all. He was something else. What Paul is driving home at is this. Carefully listen. Paul says, Jesus is fully human and fully divine. He is God, and the Father sent him, and he took on humanity without taking on sin. Christ did not, as one wrote, like every other person since Adam, succumb to the tyranny of sin. He did not himself sin, nor did he inherit the penalty of sin, which we all face in this room, called death. Here's the point. Paul says, Jesus came to save us. I mean, this is what we learned back in Romans 3.25. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. Faith is a churchy word, but it simply means to trust in. Think about those words, God presented Christ. Think about it. Ruminate with it. Let it sink in this morning. God gave over Jesus Before the beginning of time, God within himself decided to give himself for our sakes. Salvation that is so free for us sitting here or watching to cost heaven everything. God gave Jesus up. God gave Jesus over to deal with our sin. Everything we think about on Good Friday, the terrible events, the torture, the scourging, the murder itself of Jesus was the very plan of God to bring deliverance to the world. Is this some weird form of cosmic child abuse? Is our father a thug? No, because Jesus himself is God also. So God within himself loved the world so much that he sent himself for us. Another famous Bible passage, a writer wrote this passage. Jesus' teaching and his miracles and his sinless life even was very important to his ministry. But his supreme purpose in coming to earth was to be an offering for sin. Without the sacrifice of himself for the sins of the world, everything else Jesus did would still live people in their sins, still separated from God. Hear this next phrase. To teach that people can live a good life by following Jesus' example is nothing but patronizing foolishness. To try to follow Jesus' perfect example without having his own life, here it is, or without his spirit within us, it is even more impossible and frustrating than trying to obey the Ten Commandments. Jesus' example cannot save us, but instead further demonstrates that we cannot save ourselves. The only hope we have for salvation from sin is to trust in the offering of Jesus that he made on the cross. And when he became that offering, he took upon himself the penalty of death and all sin. I mean, this was predicted hundreds of years before by the great prophet Isaiah and Isaiah 53. 
This is how the message puts it. But the fact is this. It was our pains that he carried. Our disfigurements. All the things wrong with us. We thought he brought it on himself. That God was actually punishing him for his own failures. But it actually was our sins. We did this to him. That ripped and tore and crushed him. It was our sins. He took the punishment that made us whole. Through his bruises, or the old translation, through his stripes, we get what? Healed. Well, Paul says that God did all of this, in verse 4, in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us, who do not living according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Jesus, he's saying, think about this, actually obeyed the law perfectly in its entirety so then we could join a new spirit-based community which now is covered in his work and now we get to live according to the spirit. Now at this moment as Paul is unpacking this amazing passage, he stops and he just wants to remind us again of the difference between what we used to be and what we are now if you're a Christian. He says, look, the spirit of God brings a new worldview, a new mindset. He gives you new glasses to see reality. And the difference between those in Christ and those without Christ is significant, and you always see it in their worldview. Those who living, live according to the flesh, verse 5, have their mindset on what the flesh desires. But those who live according, according to the Spirit have their mindset on what the Spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God, and it does not submit to God's law. And here's an interesting thing, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. Well, that's an offensive statement in Canada, wouldn't you say? Those who are not in Christ can never please God. Those without Jesus have a distinct pattern, worldview, and mindset. They don't crave the things of God or God himself. In the grand sense, without the Spirit, we're left with spiritual death, hostility towards God, whether known or unknown, and we're left with something called no love for God or no value for God's law. No one that has encountered, not encountered Jesus Christ can please God. Not because they're all vicious, terrible people. Actually, there are many people who don't know Jesus who are way nicer than a lot of us, right? Yeah, thank you. Good. But here's the point. They have never accepted the one that has pleased God fully. That's the thing. Without Jesus, you can never please God because he's pleased God fully for us. He says, though, if you're a Christian, verse 9, you, whoever, you, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but you're in the realm of the Spirit. And indeed, if the Spirit of God lives in you, uh, the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they don't belong to Christ. Without the Holy Spirit, you just don't belong. You're not saved. You're still condemned. You're not a child of God. You cannot call God Father, let alone Daddy. We'll get to that. Only through the Spirit of Christ revealed can we actually see Jesus. And only through Jesus we can see the Father. Here's the phrase. No spirit, no Jesus. No Jesus, no Father, no Father, no relationship. No relationship, well, no life, no life. No being what you were made to be, to know God and enjoy Him forever. But those who do know Paul, do know the Spirit, Paul says, he says it's life transforming. Verse 10, but if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life of righteousness. This is important. 
The Holy Spirit, he says, is actually present in us. And when we allow him to fill us, the ethos of Jesus shows up more and more. Yet we still live in the tension of the now and not yet. We live in bodies that are still dying. Would everyone agree with that? Yes. We're still in that place. But the one who is living in us is actual eternal life. He is absolute power. And though we are dying, the one in us is eternal life. And there is stronger, stronger life in us. That is why Paul says, and if the spirit of him, verse 11, who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. The same spirit that rose Jesus physically from the dead. Think about this. The same spirit that came on the corpse of Jesus three days after he'd been murdered and rose him from the dead is actually in you. Think about the hope, the truth, and the power that's in you. This is not myth, by the way. This is not fantasy or novel. This is not utopian desire or idealism. He actually rose Jesus from the dead. And our faith as Christians is grounded not in any other place but right here. Paul said it in 1 Corinthians. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will also raise us. At this moment, any Christian who's been a Christian for a day, a week, month, or decades, or years, says in their soul, thank you. Thank you, God, that you would love us like this, that death is not the end. It does not have the final say. What a gift that never could be bought or mastered or gained by sex or money or power or anything else. But Paul then stops us in the midst of euphoria and says, by the way, yes to all of this, but you still have to live in this new life. Therefore, brothers and sisters, this is right to us, we have a, here's a word we don't like, obligation. It's not to the flesh to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the bodies, well, you're going to live. Now we are free, he's saying, to live in a new freedom. But we need to live in that truth. We need to understand that this new freedom actually says we can say no and must say no to our, to our old lives. The obligation must be followed. But it can only be done, and this is Paul's point, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Notice also, does Paul say here that we have to be perfect before this all works out? No. But what we must understand is this. The power of God is in us, so the obligation to live a new Christian life is also there. Well, at this moment, suddenly something new happens. It's like a flower that comes into full bloom. He suddenly turns and, and he speaks life into our lives, marked by gray and black most of the time. He speaks into the very essence of everything that we are. He speaks in and over our identity, our heart, the wellspring of who we are. He declares the truth of what we are because of him. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. This is a reference right back to the Exodus. They were led by the Spirit because they'd been called out. You, you and you and many of you here today, you actually are children of God. When the Spirit of God moved in, that happened. But notice, he also says we will be led. God every day will give us crystal clear truth about who we are. This is not talking about restaurant choices, uh, Swish LA after church or Tim Hortons. No. This is not talking about what college or what job to get. This is talking about one thing. Ready? Assurance. The Spirit of God He says in verse 15, the spirit you received 
does not make you a slave so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him, we cry out, ready? Abba, Father. If you're in Christ, you're not a slave. We have been emancipated. We are no longer controlled by a thug called sin, a dark master telling us what to do, when, and where. God purchased us. We are his, and our new owner is, like I've said, always love, always joy, always peace. He is always patient. He's kind. He's good. He's faithful, gentle. He never flies off the handle. He is absolute, beautiful control. And then he says these words. We've been adopted Now, every Roman hearing this for the first time would understand its power. Caesar Augustus, formerly known as Octavian, was the adopted son of Julius Caesar. And when Julius Caesar gave Caesar Augustus sonship, the whole empire suddenly became his. As one historian said, the term adoption may smack to us as artificial, but to the first century ear, An adopted son was a son deliberately chosen by adoptive father to perpetuate his name, ready, and inherit his whole estate. And not only that, many claim that that person would find more of the father's affection and would reproduce the father's character even more worthily than those born in natural means. Paul says here we are called and we are adopted. And then he brings us to the pinnacle of our most personal and shared faith. Ready? We get to call God Almighty. We get to call the Creator, the Great I Am, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. We get to call the Eternal One, Abba. Dear Father, Dad, here it is, Daddy. Jews did call God Father, but never, ever did they call Him Abba like this. As one historian wrote, Jesus used it alone, and no doubt it was considered scandalous by his enemies. Jesus, through the Spirit of God, gives us one very special name for God, and it now becomes the natural cry of every Christian around the world, Daddy, I'm here. And if that wasn't enough, it says in verse 16 that the Spirit himself testifies to our spirit that we actually are children of God. Now, if we're children, then we're heirs, and we're co-heirs with Christ Jesus. The inward witness of the Holy Spirit leads us time and time again to one place, to one declaration, to one grounding, to one all-life-changing statement, one life-giving reality, one all-consuming point. The Creator, think about this, looks upon you with all your good, bad, sin, family history, and says with a smile that is almost indescribable, you are my precious child. And we get to look back and say, and you are my perfect, safe daddy. Paul in a role not only declares all this, he also says that we are co-heirs with Christ. As one pastor said with boundless insight, if you want to understand that, later today, open your Bible and go look at Revelation chapter 5. Everything that is in Revelation 5 will be shared between us and Jesus, except worship, because that's his, not ours. Well, after that freight train of hopeful theology comes to a stop, then we all need to look around and say something to Paul. Well, thanks, by the way. And then honestly, Paul, what about life? What about all the crap? The boring day-to-day, the evil. I watch CNN and BBC, don't you? Like, just look around. I'm reading this and I'm watching that and what's going on? 
Paul would say, I think with a good smile, thank you. Thank you for asking because groaning and glory are not mutually exclusive like so many of you believe. Paul would teach us that, yes, I've shown you how the Holy Spirit has liberated you, but he does not because he is a good, good pastor. He does not dismiss the inescapable reality called pain and sin. And a little bit this week and then all of next week he talks about this. But he does put it into perspective. If indeed we share, verse 17, in his suffering, in order that we also might share in his glory, I consider that our present suffering is not worthy of comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Now before you dismiss him, just remember this. This is not a guy saying with no experience, you know, well, life is great because I've been... No, no. He lost his whole family when he became a Christian. He lost his friends when he became a Christian. He lost his status as a Christian. He was one of the best thinkers within the Jewish rabbinic movement, and he lost that academic standing. At this moment, he has been stoned, robbed, whipped. He has also been shipwrecked between two and three times. And yet, after all of that, then he says, I have considered, I have weighed the evidence. And by the way, yes, some of you have suffered here, but most of you, not like me, And I have considered that suffering not worthy compared to what is about to come. C.S. Lewis, the great, great literary giant, a militant atheist who met Jesus and became one of our greatest spokespersons in the last hundred years, who weaved the gospel through the Narnia Chronicles but wrote so much more. He actually preached a sermon called The Weight of Glory. And he noted that scripture sort of summarizes the five things that glory will be about. He said, we're going to be with Christ. We're going to be like Christ. We're going to have glory. We're going to be feasted. That's an old English way of saying we're going to party. No, really, Christians, grow up. We're going to party. Lots of food. Lots of it. If you're uncomfortable with dancing, wow, you're in trouble. Okay. (laughs) Lots coming. And then he says, we will actually have an official position in the universe. He also reminds us, too, in that sermon that we will shine like the sun. But he he concluded with these words. Indeed, he wrote, so classic, if we consider the unblemishing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord Jesus finds our desires not too strong, everyone, but much too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like ignorant children who want to go on making mud pies in a slum because they cannot imagine what is meant by the offer to have a holiday by the sea. That is our reality and the tension we live in. Next week, we're going to spend a lot of time in the second part of chapter 8, where he talks a lot about suffering, joy, and glory. But we'll end right here today because, well, we need to. Now, the question I ask all the time here, and everyone else who preaches does, also, so what? I mean, so what? We've heard another sermon, lots of information, and? Well, if we as a community choose to embrace this, and please, don't dial out, dial in now, This could be revolutionary, especially for many of you who've lived a Christian life for a long time. If not, it's just another sermon, and then you'll hit swish and go home and, I don't know, shovel. (laughs) Right? But see, what's being offered here today is something we need to get in this church. Please hear this. For you who have ears to hear this morning, genuinely, 
Here's the first statement Paul would tell us. We must root ourselves in what God says over us. What I say over John Thompson or what other people say over John Thompson or what the world declares does not matter. None of it lasts. The only word that lasts is the word of God. Christians must be encouraged, but we will only be encouraged in great times and painful times if we root our identity in what God says over us. One said that Romans 8 is the inner sanctuary within the cathedral of the Christian faith. Why? Because it speaks about who we are because of the Spirit. We are not condemned by God. We are not controlled by sin any longer. We are filled with God's own spirit. We have been bought and we have been covered and we are loved. We see the loving work of our triune God for us. Paul cries out, we have a predestining, a calling father. We have a substituting brother. We have a residing, empowering comforter who is the same very spirit that rose Jesus from the dead. We are adopted. We are his children. We are co-heirs with Christ. And all of this, gives us as Christians two things that governments and world, the world, fights for and fantasizes over and longs for. Ready? It gives us established security. And it also gives us an identity that never, ever can change or be stolen. Security and identity. Do you think anyone's looking for those two things? Everyone is. And this is what Paul says. This is given to us, not because we're great or moral, but because he's love. One pastor said the feeling of being rejected is now all too common in our world, especially our culture. Husbands reject wives, wives reject husbands, the divorce rate soars. Parents reject children, children reject parents and grandparents, high school students, all students reject one another because they're not in a certain group. Each one of you today can fill in the blank of your own experience, painful as it is, called rejection. And the sad fact is, increasingly, it is difficult to find something called a secure permanent relationship. As a result, people feel uneasy and uncertain. I know married, uh, married wives who have been in a 25-year relationship with loving husbands who now find it difficult to trust their husband because all the marriages around them are being broken. Of course, no human relationship, he writes, can ever provide ultimate security. The best-intentioned spouse can die, right? But what fellow humans can never give, never offer, God does. He gives us adoption into his own eternal family. The implication is this. What God has said over you will never be eroded. You're not big enough to kick God out of you. He loves you. Did you hear that? You are secure until death and after death. But that security leads to something even more. It is revolutionary because it actually leads us to an identity, an identity not based on what we do. Chuck Swindoll, that great American pastor, said these words. So then, he asked, what are we supposed to do after Romans 8? I mean, what's our obligation? The answer is uncomplicated. Difficult to most of us because our flesh will not surrender control easily. But the answer is straightforward enough. Ready? Nothing. I read it again. What? Nothing. He says you don't need to get up and pray. You don't need to get up at 4 a.m. for quiet time. You don't have to have family devotions. You don't need to give away all your money to shower every day, obey the Ten Commandments, wear dark clothing, eat low-fat foods. I like that. Do a pile of good deeds to become, ready, more spiritual? No. Nothing. If you have the Spirit of God in you, you're as spiritual as you're ever 
going to be. What? See, there is an imperative, he writes, to be found in Paul's description of the spirit life. It's to quit trying to be so spiritual. Stop. Amen. Someone's free in the back somewhere. He writes, stop all of this. Instead, let the spirit be spiritual. When that makes sense to you, he writes, then you can be sure that you're setting your minds on things of the spirit. You'll start to understand grace, but until then, you will never embrace the rest of the book of Romans. His statement is this, we will never be more spiritual. We will never be more loved by God by what we do. That's all done. The stuff we do for Jesus, yes, we're called to live a Christian life and obey. It's done out of love, not to improve our relationship with Jesus. It's done. God declares to our community this morning, number one, there is a security that can never be eroded by sin, by others, by the demonic. It is done. Who God says you are is who you are. Second of all, he declares this, you are as in good standing as you're ever going to be. And it leads us to this last point, this last take-home. Not only must you see yourself and live your life in the identity of the Spirit, you now need to ask for the power of the Holy Spirit. Here's a radical statement. You don't need to sin anymore. You're going to, but you don't need to. Think about the power that is in you. Like I said, it's not utopian. The Spirit of God that rose Jesus from the dead is in you. Why do you doubt that He can overcome death in you in any form? Why not call upon the Holy Spirit to raise parts of your broken life back to what God intends them to be? We reject in this church the idea that God helps those who help themselves. Garbage. That is a lie from the pit of hell or invented by a human heart full of pride and self-spiritual confidence. As someone said, even though the old nature will never give up, will never back off, will never concede defeat, we can live with an assurance that the Spirit of God is in us and we have power. And then he says, the question is, who will we yield control to? Paul wrote this whole chapter in one verse in a different letter. 2 Corinthians 3.17 Now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is what? Freedom. Freedom. Life. Hope. So the challenge today is this. Number one, if you're a Christian, will you even accept what God says over you? Because if not, you will never live a victorious Christian life. Second question, where do you need to choose freedom that is already given to you? Where do you need to choose freedom that is already given to you? I'm not saying that you don't need counseling. I'm not saying you don't need community. I'm not saying you don't need to do spiritual disciplines. Do them all. But start with the one who rose Jesus from the dead. If you're bitter, ask for the Spirit of God. If you lust all the time, ask for the Spirit of God. If you hate people or you're a racist, ask for the Spirit of God. If you are a person who struggles deeply with anyone in leadership, ask for the Spirit of God. If you're rebellious, ask for the Spirit of God. If you flirt with witchcraft, ask for the Spirit of God. What do you struggle with? The Spirit of God rose Jesus from the dead. He can take care of anything you're struggling with or I am. We need to get to the place as Christians where we declare this together. Now, but do it. Do it. 
We have to ask for the Spirit of God because he's the only one who can make us like Jesus because, oh, did you catch it? He is the Spirit of Christ. Last thought. As the team comes up, and we're going to do some prayer response, I want to speak to all of you who join us week after week or online, and you're just not Christians. You, you, you may have the name. you Christian, you may not have the name. You may be part of another movement. I just want to say something to you today. We're glad you're here, and we welcome your questions always. All of what has just been said is offered to you. Freedom, adoption, a father that will never fail, eternal life, forgiveness of sins. I mean, the list goes on. You've heard them all. This is the movement that offers all of this. No other movement on earth does. But you must come to the place that you lose your life to gain this. You got to get on your knee, not necessarily literally, but maybe, and say to Jesus, yes, I believe that not only you're the son of God, but you actually were an offering for my sin. And I just can't play this game anymore of living by myself or trying to please you or doing religion, whatever it is. You have to come to the place where you say, I do believe that you actually were the sin offering sent by God for me. When you just declare those simple words, it all changes. It doesn't become a bed of roses, but it all changes. And so why don't we as a whole community, and if you're on the go train right now or listening wherever you are on a plane, do the same with us. Let's pray as, as a community of believers, and then if you're that person who says yes to Jesus, I'll lead you in that prayer. So join me. Spirit of God, we welcome you and ask now for your power. First of all, I pray for every person among us in our community that has not believed what God has spoken over them. They are racked with guilt, shame, and doubt. And I pray right now that you would tell them, because you say you do in Scripture, that they are your children. I pray that they'd know they're adopted and loved and cared for, and glory is coming, but glory is found now. I ask in the name of Jesus, too, that any sin or anything from the kingdom of darkness that perpetuates lies in lies would be broken now in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. I also come before you, Father, myself included, all of us here, and I pray over this just sort of second whole deal, not only that I accept what God says over me, but Lord, at this moment of silence, we bring before the issues that we need freedom from and listen to God right now. Don't hold back and don't play games with him. Be detailed. Holy Spirit, I ask for your power to bring freedom in this church. Freedom in families, restoring relationships, healing stuff that is just unimaginable. Just do your deal, we pray. And lastly, if you're that person who's never really embraced Jesus and you're like, man, I want this, just pray this. Jesus, I'm done running. I'm done fighting you. I'm done trying to be good or being religious or just living with my middle finger in your face, whatever it is. Forgive me. I believe you died for me. You are that offering. And everything that John talked about today, if that could be mine, yes. So I embrace your death and resurrection for me. And I ask for the Holy Spirit that rose Jesus from the dead to come in me and change me forever. Uh, in Jesus' name, amen. 
Thanks for being with us today. If you want to know more about our church or give financially, go to our website at www.carotherscreek.ca. 